The sermon text for today is from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 2, verses 4 through 13. Listen as I read God's word. Hear the word of the Lord, you descendants of Jacob, all you clans of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and ravines, a land of drought and utter darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives? I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The priest did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. Therefore, I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord, and I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coasts of Cyprus and look, send a cater and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spirit of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns, that cannot hold water. Here ends the reading. Good morning, everyone. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, uh, my name is John. I serve as one of the pastors around here, and also I'm a nobody. (laughs) (laughs) Totally kidding. Uh, If there's ever a moment where giving me a card is anywhere close to as important as the reading of scripture, then like, I may just quit and walk out, okay? Uh, And I'll just tell you, um, earlier this week, I got another zinger. Um, Someone sent me a direct message on Instagram, and I looked at this post, and it was this, you know, this picture of this wall inside of this church. And I read the, like, you know, I read the uh, comment that was on the post, and it was like, oh, we're so thankful for our pastors and how much they give and serve, and it's all this, all this wonderful, like, we love our pastor stuff. And then I looked at the comment that the person sent me in the, in the DM, and it says, this is a cool design idea. <laughs> and I was like, hmm, great, this is cool. <laughs> yeah, Matt and I are so thankful uh, to be a part of this church family. We're so thankful for you, and uh, we're just thankful for every opportunity we have to, uh, to love you and serve you and care for you, and uh, so thank you. As we come to uh, this passage of scripture this morning, would you uh, bow with me for a word of prayer? Lord, we ask that you would do what you desire in us this morning. Lord, we come from a variety of different circumstances this week. Some of us have circumstances that are great. Some of us have circumstances that are not great. Some of us come here with little expectation or anticipation for what you will do. Some of us come here and we are hungry, we are eager, we are seeking after um, you, Jesus. And so, Lord, for every single person who is in this room, we, we trust and we believe that there is no person who is here 
or who is hearing this by accident. And so, Lord, we ask you that your Holy Spirit would do uh, the work that you and you alone can do, which is to change our hearts. Help us see Jesus clearly. Would you illuminate this passage for us? And would you help us to leave here today changed because we have seen and encountered Jesus? We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, we are in a series of messages called Gospel Foundations, and we are thinking about this really, really important question, what is the gospel? It may seem like something of a you know, remedial question for those of us who are followers of Jesus, but it's a question that is essential for all of us to, uh, to really understand and to live with a, a good answer to that question. So we're thinking together about what is this good news of the gospel, the good news about the person and work of Jesus. And I hope that as we've been going through these first couple weeks here, what you've noticed is uh, something of how the gospel, this message about what God has done for us in Jesus, is multifaceted, that it's robust, that it is, uh, that is not given to us in Scripture just as sort of a one-line definition, uh, but the gospel that's given to us is the story of God's work to save his people. And so from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end, all of that is the good news about God's work in history that culminates in the person in the work of Jesus. And why it's so important for us to think about this is because we're we're people whose lives are founded on this message, so we had better understand it. And also, we need the gospel. There's there's none of us who stops needing the gospel at any point in our life. Doesn't matter if you've been a follower of Jesus for 40, 50, 60, 70 years, none of us need the gospel any less right now in this moment than we needed it the moment we first believed and trusted Jesus. The gospel is something that every single one of us needs. And so we want to just try and take a a fresh look at it. We want to just spend some time sort of marinating in the robustness and how uh, wonderful the gospel is. And so what we've been doing is, uh, as we've sought to be uh, people who are deeply formed by this message, we've been looking at the story of the gospel that is laid out for us in Scripture. And as we look at the story of the gospel, what we see is that uh, we can sort of summarize it in uh, using these uh, six movements. So the story of the gospel can be sort of summarized in these six movements. It begins with God, humanity, rebellion, promise, rescue, and restoration. That's the story of the Bible from the first page all the way to the last. God, humanity, rebellion, promise, rescue, and restoration. Now where we find ourselves, uh, if this is your first week here or you weren't here last week, uh, where we find ourselves is sort of in this low point of the story. We're in this section on rebellion. And of course, this is not the most uh, comfortable uh, place for us to be. It's not the most enjoyable place maybe for us. We would maybe think that there's other things we'd rather hear someone talk about on Sunday morning. Uh, But this is the road that we have to travel if we are going to understand the Bible at all. If we're going to understand the message of the Bible, the message, the good news about Jesus, we have to understand uh, the nature of our rebellion and the nature of our sin and idolatry. And so we're going to sort of, uh, this is the second week uh, we're going to spend on this section, and then we're going to move on to looking at uh, the promise that was made uh, by God to make all things new, uh, how specifically God rescued us in the person of Jesus, and then we're going to see how God is making all things new uh, here and now, and eventually we get to experience that in its fullness uh, when Jesus returns and his kingdom is on earth as it is in heaven. So we're going to think about idolatry today. We talked last Sunday a little bit about, uh, we talked about sin sort of broadly. And what we have been seeing as we looked at Genesis 3 was that all humans are deeply corrupted by this poison of sin. 
All human beings are deeply corrupted and tainted by sin, but the category of sin is not the only category that the Bible uses to talk about the brokenness that exists inside of us. Sin is an Old Testament word that primarily means missing the mark, but the Bible speaks a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, not just about sin, not just about missing the mark, but about idolatry. And so we have to have a working understanding of what idolatry is. And so we're going to spend our time sort of laser focusing in today on the essence of idolatry. What is it? What does it look like? And what's the good news for us as we think about our idolatry and our sin? So uh, let's just sort of put it very simply like this. Uh, The essence of idolatry is this. Idolatry is exchange. That's at its core what idolatry is. Now let's look at this passage starting in verse 9 of Jeremiah chapter 2 where we read God saying through the prophet Jeremiah, Therefore I am bringing charges against you, declares the Lord. And I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coast of Cyprus and look, send to Kadar and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. So in these verses right here, we see God is bringing his people to court. In the beginning of the chapter, you heard Sherry read just a moment ago, we read that God's people have uh, turned their back on Yahweh and they are now worshiping idols. They have done what is right in their own eyes, and as a result of that, God is bringing his people to court. And the charges that he brings against them, we see them very clearly here in verse 11, where God says, my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. So there's an exchange that's taken place. There's a trade that has taken place. They have stopped worshiping Yahweh and they have started worshiping these idols. And we see it uh, with a little bit more clarity and definition in verse 13, where God says, my people have committed two sins. The first sin is, number one, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and number two, dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold me water. So this is the sort of the essence of idolatry, the exchange that's taking place here. It's a turning away from Yahweh and turning towards something else instead of him. And the the word picture that's used here is that of of, uh, two different sources of water. Now, I think the shock of this is somewhat lost on us because in our modern world, we have such constant and immediate access to water. Even this last year, this last summer, that many would call something of a drought season, a very dry season, there's not a single one of us that ever wondered, you know, when I turn on the, the, the spigot on my faucet, is water going to come out? None of us ever, ever wonder about that. We're, we're trying to figure out, well, on what day of the week do I need to water my grass, <laughs> right? Because the city tells me I can only water it on even days or on, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> So we, we just don't quite understand the significance of this, but w- what we understand uh, is, is something that, that they knew and felt in a way that we just don't, and that is that water is essential for life. Water is absolutely essential for life. And so imagine a context where there is no indoor plumbing. There is none of the modern conveniences. You can't just stop at a gas station and buy a bottle of water if you're thirsty, and so into that culture, this, this image of a spring of living water and a cistern full of water is put before us to describe to us the nature of what idolatry is. So you've got these two sources of water. One is a spring of living water. Now, living water is the Bible's way of saying water that's moving, water that's flowing, 
right? So there's a spring that uh, is this sort of self-generating source of water, and instead of it just sort of sitting there in a, in a stagnant pool, doesn't have lily pads on top of it, doesn't have algae growing on it, it's, it's fresh water that's self-generating that comes out of the ground, and then it's flowing, it's moving, it's fresh, it's clean, it's refreshing. And then contrast that with these cisterns. Now, a cistern was something that the ancient world needed because there was, uh, especially in the Middle East, there's a dry season and a wet season. And so during the dry season, uh, much of your water comes from the water you collected during the wet season. And so they would dig these cisterns, which would uh, typically be, uh, sometimes it looked just like a well, where it just was a sort of big shaft down. Sometimes it was like a big uh, open room that was created down in a rock formation. And uh, they would line it with plaster in order to make it waterproof. And this was the place where the runoff rainwater would accumulate and collect during the rainy season. Now, if you were digging close enough to the water table, there may be some water that sort of comes up internally. But this was primarily a way of catching runoff rainwater. So just imagine the picture that's being described here. Is you have a spring of fresh, clean, self-generating water. And someone chooses to say, you know, I'm going to get my water from this other source instead. There's this cistern that I dug, and it's got all this dirty runoff rainwater in it, and there's a crack in the bottom of the cistern, so the water that is in there is being sucked out the bottom. I'm going to choose this instead of that. That doesn't make any sense. So the picture that's being described here is, is what God is saying is choosing idolatry is choosing dirty rainwater over fresh spring water. That's essentially what God is communicating. He's, he's using this this physical picture of these two sources of water to communicate the deeper sort of spiritual reality of idolatry, which is that it's an exchange. You have a fresh source of living, self-generating water in front of you, and then you turn around and you choose to get water from a dirty, broken cistern that can't even hold water in the first place. And we would look at that and say, well, that's kind of dumb. And that's exactly the point, (laughs) is we're supposed to say, yeah, that doesn't make any sense, does it? But that's the nature of idolatry. Idolatry is an exchange. Now, at this point, I think that every single one of us has an impulse when we talk about the subject of idolatry to say, okay, but that's not me. The majority of us in this room would say, uh, I worship God, not idols. What do you mean? And maybe some of us here, uh, some of you are not even followers of Jesus. Or you would say, you know, I'm not even sure I consider myself a spiritual person. I don't worship idols. What are you talking about? Every single one of us would want to sort of say, well, that's okay. Maybe some people do, but that's not me. Let me just frame it this way instead. Idolatry is an exchange, but another way to talk about this is to say this. The essence of idolatry is misplaced affections. It's misplaced worship. That's what idolatry is. Idolatry is instead of worshiping the one true God who is the source of life and abundance, we look to something else instead. So the essence, the heart of idolatry, what idolatry is, is it's misplaced worship. It's misplaced affections. So for us, particularly in our modern culture, the way that idolatry looks is very different than it looked in a first century world. Idolatry for us does not look like we have little statues made of wood or made of, you know, some metal or something. And we have this little, uh, you know, little shrine in our living room or in our bedroom. And we sort of, you know, venerate these, these little idols. N- nobody here does that, at least that I'm aware of. 
That's not what idolatry looks like for us. But the essence of idolatry, which is misplaced worship and misplaced affection, that is still something that exists inside of every single one of us. So let me just say it like this. We've created an idol when we look to anything besides God to provide what only he can. That's what idolatry is. Looking to anything besides God. That could be a person, that could be money, could be possessions, could be food, could be drink, could be sex, could be education, could be pleasure, could be entertainment, could be athletics, could be grades, could be approval. We look to anything besides God to provide for us what only God is designed to provide for us. And so we exchange, we trade our glorious God for an idol. Another way to put it is like this. We've created an idol when we look to gain a sense of meaning and identity and purpose from one of God's good gifts instead of from God himself. God has given us an abundance of good things for us to enjoy. And what idolatry is, is looking to gain a sense of ultimate meaning and security and identity and purpose and comfort and hope apart from in one of those good gifts that God has given us instead of letting that point us to God who is the source of every good thing. So that's, that's the essence of what idolatry is. It's looking to anything besides God to provide for us what only God was designed to provide for us. And so here's the question that we all need to sort of squirm underneath. The question is, how do I know when I've created an idol? How do I know when I've created an idol? Okay, it would be really easy if idolatry was synonymous with doing bad things. If idolatry was equivalent to disobeying the rules, it could be pretty easy to identify what idolatry looks like in your life, right? Like if you're driving 70 in a 60 mile an hour zone and you get pulled over, it's like, yep, there was a sign there. You clearly broke the rule. There's a standard, you broke it, you're guilty. But it's not as simple as that. When we look to the nature of idolatry, that we look to something besides God to provide something that only God was designed to provide for us. It's much more muddy. And so here's the thing, is idolatry, sure, a lot of times, idolatry can express itself in very bad behavior. Okay? So someone has idolized, a person has idolized approval, their reputation, the way that, that other people view them. And so maybe they will lie in order to make themselves look better than they ought to look. Or maybe they will lie in order to save face, to keep themselves from looking as bad as they should look. Maybe they will manipulate people to try and get what they want. And so that's all a way of uh, the sort of things we would define as bad behavior that are the expression of idolatry. Someone's made an idol out of reputation or appearance and it works its way out. It looks like they do bad things. But here's the thing. Much of the time, idolatry does not express itself in bad behavior. Much of the time, idolatry expresses itself in good behavior. You remember the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus compares two kinds of people. And he, he, he doesn't say, you know, there's all these people that fast and they give money to the poor and they, they pray and they do all these super religious things and then there's all these really bad people. 
and they lie, cheat, and steal, and they hurt people, and they commit adultery, and they murder, and they do all these bad things. No, what Jesus says is there's two different kinds of people. They do the exact same good behavior. In fact, he's speaking of the religious leaders, the religious elite of the day, and he's saying they have made an idol out of approval. They are praying, and they're fasting, and they're giving money to the poor in order to be seen by them. In other words, they have traded They are looking not to God himself as their source of approval and identity. They're looking to the approval and the applause of the people that are watching them to gain a sense of meaning and identity and approval. And so they've created an idol. And so the same exact thing is true for us today. Sometimes idolatry looks like, oh, you do really bad things. Sometimes, if we've created an idol out of approval, sometimes what it means is that we are the best employee that you're the first one there, you're the last one who leaves, you skip lunches, you're nice, you work hard, you put in extra, you are the best employee because you have to have your coworkers and your bosses like you. Because your heart needs them to approve of you. The same thing could be said of athletics. The same thing could be said of education. The same thing could be said of parents. Sometimes our idolatry for approval looks like we are the best parents and we will we'll give our kids anything and everything that, that they need and so that they will like us. So do you see, it, it's just not as easy as, and I see some of the parents looking at their kids like, we don't do that. <laughs> but, but do you see, it's not as simple as, idolatry cannot just be equated with, oh, you do bad things. Sometimes idolatry looks like you do very good spiritual religious things, but you're doing it to gain a sense of meaning and identity and security and purpose in some place other than God. And so we just have to sort of sit under that question, how do I know when I've created an idol? And I think we we know that question, we know the answer to that question through lots of prayer, through lots of self-reflection and honesty. We know the answer to that question by giving people in our lives permission to speak into things that they see. Telling people, hey, you know, if you see something I'm doing that even remotely smells to you, like it could be misplaced worship, will you tell me? It requires that kind of humility. It requires that kind of intentionality. It requires that kind of vigilance. It requires community. It requires all of those things because we simply can't trust ourselves. Because the corruption runs deep within us. And so that is the essence of idolatry. Every single human is deeply corrupted by sin. Every single human being worships idols. And where that has left us is that we're in a bad situation. Our idolatry has left us defiled. It has left us corrupted. Look later in Jeremiah Chapter 2, verse 20. God says, Long ago you broke off your yoke and tore off your bonds. You said, I will not serve you. Indeed, on every high hill and under every spreading tree, you lay down as a prostitute. There's very graphic language that's being used to describe the idolatry, the exchange. It's spiritual prostitution is what God calls it. Verse 22, he goes on to say, although you wash yourself with soap and use an abundance of cleansing powder, the stain of your guilt is still before me. 
So the idolatry that exists within our hearts leaves us guilty. It leaves us stained. It leaves us defiled. But there is good news. There is good news in the midst of that, and the good news is that through Jesus we are made clean. The good news is that yes, we are defiled, yes, we are corrupted by sin and idolatry, we are deeply flawed, and yet God, through Jesus, has made a way for us to be clean. This is something that we see later in the book of Jeremiah. There's sort of a a hope and an expectation. In chapter 33, I'll read starting in verse 7 where God says to his people who are in exile, speaking about bringing them back from exile, he says, I will bring Judah and Israel back from captivity and will rebuild them as they were before. I will cleanse them from all their sin they have committed against me and I will forgive all their sins of rebellion against me. So God is saying, yes, you are corrupted by sin, you are corrupted by idolatry, it's left you defiled, but there will come a time when I will wash you clean. Another passage that speaks to this, I think, in in something of uh, maybe a more uh, powerful way is Ezekiel, who's speaking to those in exile as well, and he says this. God says this through Ezekiel in chapter 36, starting at verse 24. For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and carefully keep my laws. So yes, we are corrupted. Yes, we are defiled by idolatry and sin, as the Bible says. And yet there is this hope. There's an expectation that one day God will release his people from their captivity. He will release them from their exile and he will wash them clean. In John chapter 13, Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room. What's interesting, and many people have noticed this, is that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they record Jesus in the upper room celebrating the Passover with his disciples, and that's where we see uh, what we refer to as the Lord's Supper where Jesus takes the bread, he takes the wine from that Passover meal and says to his disciples, this is my body, this is my blood given for you. And so what Jesus is doing in that moment is he is taking those elements and he's using the communion meal to say, when I go to the cross and when I suffer and die, he's explaining to them what his death is accomplishing. In the Old Testament, God released his people out of slavery in Egypt through the Passover, That was their exodus. And what Jesus is saying is he's taking that meal and applying it to himself, saying, when I suffer and die, what you are experiencing is the greater exodus. Yes, there was an exodus where God led his people out of slavery in Egypt, but greater than the circumstantial exodus that they experienced was the exodus that you were going to experience when you were liberated from your enemies of sin and death and the evil one. There's a greater exodus that's coming and Jesus uses that meal to say, to explain to them what his death actually means, what it's going to accomplish. Now in in John chapter 13, we see Jesus in the upper room, but there is no Passover meal. What do we see in John 13 instead? Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. 
Now don't miss this. John tells us in in verse 2, the evening meal was in progress. So while they're doing this Passover meal, Jesus gets up in the middle of the meal and gets down and washes his disciples' feet. And so you, you begin to see that there are just layers of theological meaning here with what's going on. So Jesus, in the book of John, it, it does not do this sort of words of institution. What he does is he washes his disciples' feet. And the text tells us, verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. So Jesus, who is, we're told in, in the book of Colossians and in Hebrews, that Jesus is the one through whom everything was created. Jesus is the creator and the sustainer. He took on human flesh. He's sitting in this room with the disciples. And the text says, Jesus knew that all authority belongs to him. What does Jesus do with all authority and with all power? He gets down on his hands and knees and he washes their feet. And then Jesus comes to Peter, who tends to say dumb things at inopportune times, as you may know if you're familiar with these accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. He comes to Peter, and Peter says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied in verse 7, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. So what Jesus says to him is, What Jesus has said elsewhere in John's gospel is a way of saying, until I'm crucified, you're not going to understand what I'm doing. But after you have watched me be executed, after you've watched me be buried, you will finally understand what is happening right now. So so don't don't miss the significance of this. Jesus is, is experiencing the Passover meal, and he says to his disciples, this meal that you are partaking of right now is, is explaining to you what my death is going to accomplish. In my death, there is going to be a greater exodus. And then Jesus gets down on his feet and, and washes their feet and says to Peter, you don't get it right now, but after you see me suffer and die and after you reflect on these things, you'll finally get it. And so what Jesus is saying is, He's using not just the the Passover meal, he's using the washing of his disciples' feet to explain to them what the cross is going to accomplish. So in other words, Jesus provides not only the greater exodus, Jesus provides the greater cleansing. What Jesus accomplishes as he suffered and died on the cross is that he cleansed us. He washed us clean. Now in the Old Testament, it was the sacrifices that were offered at the temple that, that cleansed the sins of the people. But they had to keep come doing it over and over and over and over again because the, the, the sacrifice that they made could never actually take away the stain of the guilt and the, and the condemnation that they sat under because of their sin. But it was the provision, it was the way God made for his people to be wiped clean. And it leaves us anticipating a time when there will be another one who will come. And Jesus says to his disciples in that upper room, by getting down and washing their feet, he says, you don't understand it right now, but what you're going to see is that as I suffer and die on the cross, I am the greater sacrifice that all those sacrifices anticipated and pointed forward to. And I am the one who provides, as I sacrifice myself for you, I will provide for you the greater cleansing that your heart most desperately needs. 
And so the death of Jesus, as he goes to the cross, what he's doing, what he's accomplishing, is he is cleansing us from our sin. He's cleansing us from the defilement of the sin and the idolatry that exists inside of our heart. Now, there are times where Jesus in the Gospels, he encounters someone who is unclean. You know, usually he'll, he'll come in contact with someone who, is, uh, who has leprosy, someone who's ceremonially unclean. And the way that it worked was that somebody who was unclean, if you came in contact, so if someone who was clean came in contact with someone who was unclean, the person who was clean would become defiled. But what we see with Jesus is the exact opposite. Jesus reaches out and touches a person who has a defiling skin disease, and Jesus didn't become defiled. The leper became clean. It's proximity to Jesus that washes the stain of our sin and guilt away. It's proximity to Jesus that makes us clean. And so the good news of the gospel is that yes, we're defiled by sin. Yes, we're defiled by our idolatry. Yes, our hearts are, uh, are really good at, at creating idols. <laughs> yes, we are, uh, as, as C.S. Lewis says, like, yeah, we're, we're too easily pleased. We're so willing to give ourselves to just about anything that'll give us a momentary sense of pleasure or excitement. We're so easily pleased. Yes, that is true of us. And at the same time, Jesus has made us clean. Jesus has washed us clean. Our sin has made us unclean, but Jesus has gone to the cross. He suffered, he's died, he's risen from the dead, which what that proved was that sin and death and the evil one have no claim on him. And what it means is that we who identify with him by faith, the Bible says that we are in Christ, that we are so closely identified with him that the Apostle Paul can say we are seated with him right now in the heavenly realms because our identity is so closely bound up with Jesus and who he is and what he's done. And so the same thing that's true about Jesus, the power of sin and the power of death and the power of evil and have, have, have no claim on him, that's also true of us who are united to Christ by faith. And so the Apostle Paul can write in the book of Romans, he can write and he can say there is therefore no condemnation. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that is the good news. Yes, we are defiled by our idolatry, we're defiled by sin, and yet Jesus has made us clean. As we come to the communion table today, we get to reenact and we get to celebrate that Jesus has made us clean. And he's done it by giving us his body, by shedding his blood for us. And so as we come forward today, as we physically stand up and walk out of our seats what we are declaring is that we are united to Jesus. And yes, we accept Jesus, we love Jesus, we are unified, we are identified with him. And we get to commune with him as we come forward and receive his broken body and shed blood for us. As we come to the communion table, I'd like to invite you just to take a few moments of silent confession and reflection.
Our merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in our thoughts, in our words, and in our deeds. We've sinned against you by the things that we have done as well as by the things that we have left undone. We confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, we confess to you the ways that we have, whether we are aware of it always or not, we have created idols. Lord, we confess the ways that we have taken the good gifts that you have given us, and we have looked to them to provide something that they were never designed to provide for us in the first place. Lord, we confess the ways that we have, in the words of Jeremiah 2, we have turned away from you, the source of living water. Lord, we have given our hearts, we've given our affections, our worship has been misplaced onto things that cannot provide a fraction of what you can. So Lord, we ask that as we continue to worship this morning as we meditate on these things that you would give us by your spirit, you would give us glimpses into the idolatries that exist within our heart. Lord, protect us from looking at a passage like this and thinking, that's not me. Lord, we ask that we would not only be able to see clearly what those areas of idolatry are, that you would enable us by your grace uh, to, to live lives of, of repentance where we turn from those idols, where we keep those good gifts that you've given us in their proper place. Lord, give us humility, give us intentionality, give us community, give us relationships. Lord, we desire that we would not be people who are given over to idols, but we want to be people who are given over fully and entirely to you, the spring of living water. Lord, we confess that we need the help of your spirit to be able to even see those things as well as to be able to to change. So Lord, help us as we celebrate Christ at the table. Would Would you stir our hearts and our affections for him? And would you use that to lead us to be the kind of people that increasingly that increasingly are horrified by our idolatry. Lord, we need your help. In your mercy, we pray that you would forgive what we have been. We pray that you would help us amend what we are. And we pray that you would direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. And all God's people said, Amen.